Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller. I'm Ben Schumann-Stoller. Hey. What's up? What do we got today? Here we are. Today, we have somebody who is a writer. She's a performer. She's a four-time Emmy Award-winning television journalist. She's written for Vice, Time, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times. Bam, I don't know bam. where I'm going with this, this <laughs> crazy announcer voice, but uh, I wanted to give her a good walk-in. Today, we have Cole Kasdan who recently wrote a book called What's Eating Us? Women, Food, and the Epidemic of Body Anxiety. It's all about diet culture and what it's doing to our bodies and our minds, yeah. and which is such an elementary thing, but honestly, poll most women, and I, I can't speak for men, poll most women, and a lot of them will tell you, I think about what I eat a lot, slash two distractions, slash all the time. It's just, it's in the air. It's the water that we are swimming in. And I thought this was a really, really great book, especially at the beginning of the year when, True. honestly, a lot of us are maybe trying to change things that we don't need to be changing. True. And definitely men. I mean, anytime of you course. hear a man talking about paleo, four-hour body, carbs, yeah. that's all the same. It is. It's I mean, it's diet it's, culture. Yeah. And it's diet culture masquerading as something else, which right. is right. what we get into in this interview. It's diet culture masquerading as, quote, wellness. Rock. And what has that done to us and our brains and how we feel about our bodies? That's a hook. That is a hook. I think we should. <laughs> <laughs> let's just stop there. Let's play it. Yeah, I let's do talk wanna, about that more. We will talk about that more. Cole's going to talk about that more. Yeah. But I, what I really wanted to say up top, there are a couple things, actually. This could be triggering. We talk about eating disorders. If that's something that you think might be harmful for you, turn it off. There's plenty of other great Simplify content out there for you. And we don't want to get anybody in a bad place. So... Just so you know, we're talking about eating disorders, nothing super graphic, but that talk is there. Also, I make a mistake. Cole sets me right, which I really appreciated. I mistook something she said to mean that any kind of restricting eating is disordered eating, when really what she'd said is restricting food qualifies as a diet. So you'll hear that moment. I just wanted to say up top that I got it wrong. Sometimes I do. And the third thing I wanted to say is that this is not, as Ben also said, this is not just a women's problem. Women, Food, and the Epidemic of Body Anxiety might be in the subtitle of this book, but we know that less than ideal thoughts and attitudes about body and food and eating, it's not limited to a woman's world and a woman's thoughts, any body you exist in, any way you identify, this can be for you. So that's it. Those are my disclaimers. And I think we should just get into it. Nice. Okay. Cool. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, man, me too. Your area of expertise for this book anyway is an issue that's very close to my heart and uh, probably will be to a lot of people listening too. You are a person of many talents. You're a reporter. You're a journalist. You have written for all kinds of different outlets, Vice, Time, The New York Times, produced for Good Morning America. Your first book is What's Eating Us, Women, Food, and the Epidemic of Body Anxiety. Um, and in it, it's about the, the environment that we live in, the environment of body anxiety and the diet industry and many, many other things. And I'd be, I'd love just a little bit of background on what got you to this book. And you can share as much or as little of your personal story as you like. Yeah, I'm happy to share, you know, to be transparent about it because I think that's important. I think the fact that there's a lot of just embarrassment and shame around these disorders that is, that makes sense. It's appropriate. It's not some sort of like character failing if you don't want to talk about it because it's intimate and it's embarrassing. And 
and it's really difficult to talk about it. So I'm fortunate and just so grateful to be at a point where I am comfortable being transparent about it, which I hope could give someone comfort that it's not weird. It's not different. It is sadly a bit normal. I don't know if there was a time when I ever had a, a great, easy relationship with food, maybe when I was a young child. When I was a teenager, you start dieting regardless of what your weight is. I was a dancer for much of my life, which is not why you develop an eating disorder, but it certainly provides a lot of wind at your back if you want to stop eating. Um, and once I stopped dancing, um, my body returned to its biologically somewhat predetermined weight of, oh, you're not dancing eight hours a day and just eating grapes and smoking cigarettes. You are just eating now. And that weight gain was very triggering for me to want to go back to those behaviors that I had when I was a dancer. So on and off for much of my adult life, probably longer, if I ever sat down to do the math, I'd probably be really shocked at how long I had an eating disorder or some degree of disordered behaviors. And when I finally, in my mid-30s, went to get treatment. I was at a time in my life where I, I really had to address it. I was very proud of myself as a journalist for doing the research. What's the best therapy? What do we do? Going through that therapy, really sort of cheering victory about it, and then relapsing for years after, over and over and over again. Thoughts in my head about a new workout, a new diet. What do I do? Questioning myself, not knowing what I should eat or how I should eat or who I was. And I thought, is this just me? This was the initial impetus for some of my early short pieces in journalism about the eating disorder epidemic, because I wanted to know if I was the only one. And I learned not only was I not alone, but this was pretty much the norm, that recovery doesn't stick for a lot of people. And for an epidemic that kills so many people, that is so common. There's no standard of care. Recovery doesn't stick. Are you kidding me? So that was why I set out to, to write the book when I discovered that this was actually the norm and, and reaching out to the top researchers in the world and saying, why, why isn't there a standard of care? And instead of them saying, oh yeah, you figured us out. Of course, they were 20 steps ahead of me, 200 steps ahead of me. They said, we know it's appalling. We're working on it. Yeah. It was chilling to me to read in your book that eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And that puts it neck and neck with opioid deaths. And I think that the stat was every 52 minutes, someone dies as a direct result of their eating disorder. And to think that there isn't a good standard of care for this and that so many people who suffer from eating disorders suffer in relative silence and shame is appalling. I think appalling is the right word for it. And I can't help but think that to a large extent, it's because this is probably classed as a women's illness. Mm -hmm. Like so many other women's health things, um, you know, it's shrouded in mystery. We don't really know what'll help. But like, why don't we know what'll help? Well, I also think it connects directly to messages we get every day about our bodies and a certain standard of beauty and how we're supposed to look. And so, you know, when I was at my sickest, really, really ill, I was complimented constantly and told I looked amazing. And what's your secret? God, you look great. You look great. And so I was, I was winning 
I was doing really harmful things to get there and stay there, but it's rewarded. But not without a cost. And so often I think that the things that we do to mitigate for potential fatness, they come under the guise of healthiness, which is yes. really, really confusing. And you talk about that a lot in your book, how eating healthy is just a new way to talk about dieting. Can you can you talk a little bit about how insidious the language around weight loss and dieting has become? Yes. And we have to remember that so much of this language was given to us, right? We didn't invent this. It's been handed to us by a very, very powerful billions of billions and billions and billions of dollar weight loss industry that influences, uh, in the U.S. at least, food choices, government recommendations for food. This is all so nefariously wrapped up together. So these are not ideas that we have. These are ideas that we are given from birth, that we have to eat a certain way, that fat is bad, all of these things. Um, when it comes to healthy eating, of course, we want to know, wait, if I'm eating healthily and mindfully, is that a diet? And it's very, very simple. If you are restricting food, not for an allergic or medical reason, right? But if you are restricting food to make your body smaller in any way, or if you're calling that getting healthier, then restriction is dieting. And the way we look at it to follow the research, which tells us that when we restrict food, all these mechanisms kick in to keep us alive, right? And that's why the most common response that the body has to dieting and restriction is eventually to not only gain weight back that one has lost, but to gain more weight to, again, keep you safe. Now, we, we know there's so much research. Sometimes I say it's boring to talk about, but it's not. There's so much research that diets are all equally ineffective, that they do not result in, in long-term weight loss. And weight fluctuation, that kind of going up and down, up and down, is really harmful to our bodies and increases risk, it looks like, for chronic illnesses. And the irony, kind of twisted irony of this, is when we conflate weight loss and health, we actually begin to pursue behaviors that are detrimental to our health because mm. health is not a size. Health is reducing risk of chronic illness, for one. Hmm. That's what health is. Yeah. I'm letting that sink in. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> health is not a size. And yet we're told all the time that health is a size. Right. And, you know, anti-fat bias and the social stigma around obesity is present everywhere. And I, you write in your book, I think, that there's this belief that fat people are just thin people with bad eating habits. Mm -hmm. And the implications around that are huge. I mean, how much is really due to individual habits in this obesity epidemic we're experiencing? And how important is the function of changing the food environment? Well, the food environment is obviously germane to this conversation. And mm -hmm. I think that public health researchers, at least the ones that I interview, would be the first to say that the focus needs to shift to the food environment as opposed to berating people for not having willpower. There were people in larger bodies since the beginning of time. And I think the fact that there are more of them now is more about the food environment than people. Hang so, on. Actually, I'm so sorry. 
to interrupt you, what is the food environment actually? How would you define that for someone listening who just doesn't really have any grounding in this? Of course, I can speak to the food environment in the U.S. And I don't mean to make this conversation so U.S. centric because I do That's talk actually about fine. other countries. Okay. But there are a lot of foods manufactured in the U.S. where millions and millions of dollars of research is put into flavoring and chemicals that make the body want to eat not just one, but 100 of something. They mess with our actual biology. And we have a lot of foods that I hesitate to talk about processed foods because I don't think processed foods are bad. In fact, I think it's important not to say any food is bad because we want to not restrict anything. But we have food access issues in the United States where there are a lot of foods that are manufactured with the idea of tricking the brain into eating a hundred of those foods. Those foods are usually less expensive than fruits and vegetables, um, brown rice, quinoa, all the fancy grains that everyone wants you to eat, right? So we have to look at the food environment as a piece of this. Now, food lobbyists are powerful. And an example of this is that in the United States, every five years, I believe, the United States government puts together a list of dietary recommendations. You should have five fruits and vegetables a day, whatever. And they gather a scientific committee, experts, to make some of these decisions. Most recently, the scientific committee recommended that sugar should comprise no more than 6% of a person's diet. Well, the government decided to ignore the recommendation of its own scientific committee and say that people could have 10% of their diet be sugar. Well, who is influencing that change? Is that the food lobby? There's a lot of money at stake here. And this is not my expertise. I delved into only a little bit of this in the book, but it's an important part of the conversation because if we want to focus on changing health in this country, then maybe that's where we should put our focus instead of telling people to lose weight. Because to your original question, we may not be able to control our weight as much as the weight loss industry would have us believe. Our weight is not calories in, calories out, calories burned. It is genetics, age, stress, hormones, and so many things that researchers told me we might not even know yet. So if we think of weight that way, no doctor is helping a patient by telling them to lose weight. Instead, we actually can improve health by looking at our behaviors. There's an amazing amount of research that shows that exercise has incredible health benefits, whether you lose weight or not. Now, do people want to hear that? Definitely not. <laughs> Most people I know do not want to hear that. <laughs> um, let's take it back to, I guess, somewhat definitional terms here. Mm. You said earlier that any restricting of food Maybe there's a there was a second sentence there, but pretty much any restricting of food or management of food in a way that is, you know, unnatural and premeditated, that is disordered eating. And maybe that's wrong, but I just want to say that there's like the big three that people usually know about. Mm -hmm. 
actually, there's really only two. I feel like anorexia and bulimia, everybody's heard of those and maybe has kind of a sense of what they are. But there's also binge eating disorder. And there are other acronyms that I learned from reading your book that are just catch-all phrases. Could you talk a little bit about the catch-all phrases? Sure. And I also just want to say that I would say that not all food restriction is disordered eating. I would say that restricting food would qualify as a diet. Okay. But not necessarily as disordered eating. Because I think when we, when we look at disordered eating, it's accompanied by a stress or distress right Mm -hmm. around eating. And we have to kind of look at how much stress or distress do we have around eating. Mm -hmm. I recently went to a birthday party uh, for my sons, someone in my son's class. They're three years old. And there was a parent who just said, I've been waiting all week for this cake. Oh well, boy. if she has really changed the way she eats during the entire week and is thinking about this birthday party on Saturday where she's going to have a piece of cake, she might have some disordered eating patterns or stress around food. I don't know her. I'm not a doctor. But it's the distress factor that really clues us in. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, I can, I can quickly, you know, define some of these for us. Anorexia and bulimia are the big ones that I think everyone's heard of. And there's also binge eating disorder. Um, anorexia nervosa is really severely restricting food and it is accompanied by definition by reaching a dangerously low weight. Bulimia nervosa is binging and purging and binge eating disorder is really just the binging part. It's eating mm-hmm. very, very large amounts of food and not compensating for that in any way. But the category that interests me so much now is called OSFED, which is other specified feeding or eating disorders. And it's this well-meaning but nebulous catch-all for everything that doesn't fit into a diagnostic category. And I'll use myself as one example for this. Um, I was starving myself, skipping meals, purging, and not binging. So that makes me not officially in the category of bulimia because bulimia requires, for the diagnostic criteria, a binge with the purge. And I didn't fully meet anorexia because anorexia has a BMI qualification, and I was one number away from that. So I would have been, if we're going by very strict diagnostic definitions, neither anorexic or bulimic, though I was at a dangerously low weight and I was purging constantly. Mm-hmm. I would fall into that OSFED category. Now, someone uh-huh. who is constantly preoccupied with what they're eating, with what they're putting in their body with their weight, constantly giving up certain foods, frequent dieting. Those are all symptoms of OSFED too. So there's a huge range in behaviors. And again, I say well-meaning but nebulous because it is well-meaning. It is a category created for people to maybe get health insurance coverage for their treatment if they don't fit perfectly into one of the diagnostic criteria that have been established. But we have to remember that people with OSFED are at just as high a risk to die of their eating disorder than someone with anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. These are fatal illnesses. And most of the people who are in community clinics in the U.S. for eating disorders have OSFED. Mm -hmm. It seems everything that that we've been talking about, it feels like almost inevitable (laughs) to develop some kind of disordered eating ideas and and patterns around 
food. What would it look like to have a healthy attitude toward food? It's such a good question. Um, I have no idea personally. <laughs> I, I do. And this is, and this is so much of why I wrote the book. I thought, gee, if I can create a roadmap that I didn't have, the end game is eating regularly, which is not only something for your physical body to stay alive, which has a great deal of value, eating for our mental stability and grounding. It sounds so simple and so obvious, but we don't eat. Most people don't eat every three to four hours. That is how we heal, not just from an eating disorder, but from these attitudes. And so I think it comes with number one, practice, practicing new ways to talk to ourselves and to talk to each other. And also information. Like I find information very empowering. When I see how much money the diet industry is making, that's information that helps me. When I see that there are correlations between weight fluctuation, losing and gaining weight, and type 2 diabetes, that's important information. That makes me not want to lose and gain weight. When I see the incredible amount of research that diets do not result in long-term weight loss, that is information. So I think we almost have to all become researchers and combat the messages that we are getting from advertisers and marketers with science. Mm, I like that science is an answer. <laughs> <laughs> my first my first line of defense whenever I have any kind of thing that I'm not feeling right about is to just go learn about it. I buy a book. I look up articles. So the science and the information angle appeal very much to me. But look, it's hard because I will say that, you know, I went through just hell having an eating disorder, recovering from an eating disorder, not recovering writing this book and really coming out the other end that I feel like my recovery is stronger than it's ever been before. I do this research. I keep up on this the best I can. And yet it was Halloween a couple nights ago here. And my three-year-old is having his first Halloween going door to door, getting candy. And I'm thinking, well, we're not going to eat that one. We can't eat that one. No, he's only three. He can't have that. And I have to keep that to myself. He ended up having two pieces of candy in the car and never brought it up again. And I'm going to probably throw the rest of it out if he doesn't even know it's there. But my internal history, I can't help but have those conversations with myself, wanting to restrict his food. Yeah. And on the topic of recovery, you said you're feeling stronger and than ever in your recovery. The National Eating Disorder Association says, although everyone has the potential to recover fully, not everyone will. Mm -hmm. And that is so depressing. What do people do when relapse happens? You know, it's so tricky because it's not easy. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to find a treatment center that may be not offering evidence-based treatment and saying things like, everyone gets better. We figured it out. Mm -hmm. And one of the leading researchers I interviewed said, if, if a website claims that everyone gets better, uh, run the other way. <laughs> Yeah, because these are very difficult disorders to treat. And I don't want to lead with, um, you know, I think hope is really important. And I think there's reason for people to have hope. I really, really do. I think recovery can look different for different people. I think people are ready for different levels of recovery. But I think that there is hope. So I want to lead with that before I say, if you or someone you love is looking for help for an eating disorder, there's a lot of work you have to do. 
to find which treatments are the most effective. And knowing that the most effective treatment doesn't mean you kind of get your recovery diploma and you never have to think about it again. But it also does not mean it's a chronic illness. It is something you can be free from and the thoughts get quieter and quieter and quieter the longer Mm. you maintain that. So one researcher gave the analogy of hurting her back in college and she healed fully But if she lifts something heavy, uh, there goes the back. So Mm. she recommends for eating disorder recovery, boosters, kind of like a COVID booster. If you are feeling a relapse, if you're feeling a moment, uh, or if you did relapse, maybe you go get some sort of booster, six therapy sessions to kind of get you back. Mm. But it requires a knowledge of which therapy is giving you the best chance of that right? Mm -hmm. And it's not watercolor painting, right? (laughs) It's family-based treatment for kids and teens, and usually cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy for adults. Again, not a guarantee, but Mm evidence-based. And and I think having a community of some sort is important too. And it doesn't need to be an eating disorder support group at all. It can be a knitting circle or whatever your cycling group, whatever your thing is. It can be one person. It can be a sibling, a best friend, a partner, whatever, but someone that you can offer support to and they can offer support to you because it's the isolation that makes us so um, vulnerable. And I think when we have some sort of community, it can also give us resilience in a world that is really all about dieting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking about, there are so many interviews that I've been lucky enough to do over the years with people who basically say that connection is the prescription. It's the the panacea almost. Mm -hmm. So many of the illnesses that we have in modern life are the direct result of isolation and either believing we are alone or actually making ourselves alone through technology and habit and choice. I'm thinking about Johan Hari, who wrote Lost Connections, mm. and um, that basically his his whole theory is that depression is is really just about loneliness and lack of meaningful connection to purposeful work, to community, to self, really. And eating disorders strike me as another one of these things that are so much about the loss of connection. I mean, it certainly helps them thrive. I Mm. think we also have to look at eating disorders as, for many people, brain-based illnesses. The brain may not be signaling fullness or the brain may not be signaling hunger. Mm. There are things chemically misfiring in your brain. And I only say that because I think we often think of eating disorders as something that is something that we are consciously doing or trying to control something, which is a misnomer. But they definitely, but it is. I mean, I find that very comforting. I mean, you look at, I mean, and again, not for everyone because Mm -hmm. I think trauma really figures in very strongly. There's a strong correlation between stressful and traumatic events and developing an eating disorder. So I think that's important to remember that there is something chemical happening for a lot of people and that this is for many a brain misfiring. Now, when you couple that with family messages, the culture we live in, stress, and isolation, it's harder to get out. But I think community and connection definitely can help maintain recovery. 
even just as simply as having someone you feel safe talking about it with. Yeah. Cole, we're getting sort of toward the end here. And there are two things I always like to ask people before we say goodbye. And one of them is if there were one thing that you wish people understood about eating disorders, just one takeaway, what would that thing be? The one thing I would really want people to know about eating disorders, as complex as they are, is that it's not your fault if you have one. There may be a brain misfiring. You have absolutely no control over that. There may be uh, something biologically happening. There are so many factors that contribute, and usually it's not just one, to why a person develops an eating disorder. And if a person can know that this is not a pouty teenage girl who wishes she was thinner, that could be part of it, but that's not what it is. This is not a person's fault for having one. We really have such a misperception about these illnesses. Hmm. Thank you for that. And is there anything that you've read in all of your research for this book? Any other further reading that you would recommend to people? Um, there are some resources I list in the back of the book that can mm-hmm. be really helpful for people who might be just recovery curious, uh-huh. <laughs> which I think is the first step. And so there are some great resources online. The one that comes to mind right away is Project Heal, which is a great nonprofit organization that helps match people with treatment and also helps them pay for it. Mm. Um, so that is a place that I would, you know, not hesitate to send people for more information gathering. Great. Thank you. All right. Cole Kasdan, thank you so much for taking the time today to speak about this. I really appreciate you and your work. Thank you so much. Great questions. It's such a fantastic conversation. All right. Welcome to the bookend, where we end with books. Wonderful. So how do we pick up that hook and how do we pick up that idea that eating disorders is linked to so much more? Well, that that hook was eating disorders and diet culture. What we Mm. said was diet culture is masquerading as, quote, wellness. Yeah. And in order to be well, you have to, quote, be on a diet or some kind of diet. But we don't want to call it a diet anymore. That's passe. It's, you know, unhealthy. We do know that it's a no-no to talk about being on a diet. But related to this idea, Cole said a lot of really fascinating, important things in there. But what's really stuck with me is health is not a size. Mm -hmm. My note is, dang, health is not a size. (laughs) And she says, when we conflate weight loss and health, we actually begin to pursue behaviors that are detrimental to our health because health is not a size. Health is reducing risk of chronic illness. And that meant a lot to me, I think, because so often we focus on what health looks like rather than how health is lived and how health feels in the body and Whenever you start to focus on what health looks like rather than how health feels to you and the future toward what you're optimizing, you're really optimizing for being marketable in some way, whether that is romantically marketable or marketable to an employer or viable in society. You're thinking about an outside in definition of what health is rather than an inside out definition and probably talking to yourself in a way that is not particularly helpful. Health is not a size. That's what's going to stick with me. I think that's right. Like, I think we've given people a really helpful sort of one-liner. Health is not a size. But what do you think is like something everybody needs to look out for? What do you think is actually the most dangerous 
topic here. About diet culture? Yeah, like what do you think people should be looking out for, either in themselves or in the world, that people mm-hmm. can avoid? Mm-hmm. Well, I think Cole said it actually at, towards the end of our talk. Watch how you talk to yourself. Mm. The most dangerous aspect of diet culture is... I'm not sure if we can define it as the most dangerous aspect, but I think one of the most insidious things about it is how it, it like the way that we feed ourselves and what we feed ourselves with, it gets inside of us mm-hmm. and it begins to form what we are made of. You are the sandwich you ate yesterday, just like <laughs> you are yeah. your self-talk for right. the past three decades. So notice that. I think that... It's dangerous to be talking to yourself and to others and to your kids about, you know, this is a good food. This is a bad food. No, no, we don't eat that in this house. Less talking to ourselves about how we should or shouldn't act around food and more listening to what our bodies are telling us about food and how we feel. I don't know if I answered the question. Yeah, but no, I think yes. I think you did very clearly. Self-talk. Self-talk. Yeah. Which, you know, that's very simplistic. And as you said, this is an extremely complicated, complex topic. And I would say Cole's book is a wonderful resource. And at the end of her book, she has like lists and lists of resources that you can use to learn more about OSFED. Um, You can use to find the right help for you or alternative therapies that might work. I would really recommend picking it up if you were someone you know and love could use it. Yeah. So should we get into books? Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, You first. Yeah. So the book that I brought is called Intuitive Eating Mm -hmm. by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. The subtitle is A Revolutionary Anti-Diet Approach. Mm -hmm. And there's this great, great quote from the Blinks about how dieting, like I mentioned before, like is scientifically been proven not to work. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like I can't reiterate that enough. Mm -hmm. Like dieting does not work. There's Mm -hmm. other ways to hit whatever things you need to do for your own health. But this thing from the Blinks says, if people took an asthma medication that improve their breathing for a few weeks, but undermine their long-term health, we'd be crying foul. And yet when it comes to dieting, we blame ourselves and our lack of willpower, right? Like imagine you had asthma and you took Mm -hmm. something and made you better for a minute and Mm -hmm. then it didn't. People would be like, oh, you don't have the willpower to get rid of your asthma, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. That's kind of where we're at. And it's a bit sad. I mean, it's irrational somehow. It is. This topic is extremely personal to me, which, you know, I don't think we need to get into, but the blame that we place on people for being, quote, overweight or the blame that we place on people for just the way that their bodies are. There's so much, as Cole says, that goes into this stuff. It's it's mental health. It's childhood history. It's everything. So to think that, you know, to aver that a fat person, quote unquote, is just a thin person in a fat body. totally wrong. You're just a person in a body and your body is the way it is. That's right. it. Right. And it is the way it is because of a whole host of complexities around it. I, I just kind of got off track there. We'll probably no, that's that, but, no, that's fine. What, um, what's your book? I've got a book rec and I also have an episode rec because nice. you can probably guess who I'm going to recommend. It's the same person. Sonia Renee Taylor. She wrote a book called The Body is Not an Apology. And mm. I got to talk with her, I think, God, in like 2019, a while ago, but this interview and her work has really stuck with me. 
possibly because she's also a spoken word poet and she has the, a really she's a way of like finding the phrase and this phrase the body is not an apology yeah. is so strong and this book is about radical self-love and acceptance and that is directly related to what we were talking about at the end here um watch the way you talk to yourself because the stories that we tell ourselves become who we are just like the sandwich that we ingested becomes who we are if you want to learn how to get a little bit more accepting of yourself and how you are in the body you're in and just, you know, be a little bit more chill about all of this. It's a really good antidote to diet culture, I guess. Nice. Yeah. New, it's a new way to think about the body that has nothing to do with manipulating how it looks. Right. Um, pick it up. The blinks are great. And there is another Simplify interview that we'll link to in the show notes with Sonia Renee Taylor. Awesome. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to say in this episode, if for, you know, this is the end, but I think we should call out the men aspect of this. Yeah. I mean, I just think that dieting looks a bit different sometimes for men mm. and the shame like language and the words and the marketing is totally different. Yeah. So it might be linked more to performance instead mm. of uh, health. Like it might be instead of, you know, you're overweight, you shouldn't be because it's unhealthy. It might be more like you're overweight, you shouldn't be because then you can't win. Mm. Oh my God. Right. And so wow. I think, yeah, I mean, and I think anytime you hear yourself saying, I need to watch out for carbs or I need to check out my fasting schedule again or uh, these protein shakes or just pay attention to why you're doing that. Am I mm. skipping a meal because like for what? Mm. And I, I think you'd be surprised. Like, I think most men listening know what I mean. I think that most people pay attention to how men talk about it. There's definitely yeah. unhealthy, dangerous self-talk that happens there too. And they're it's just, just coded differently. It's just coded differently. They're just yeah. as perceptive to the criticism, to the demands mm. of the outside world. It just shows up in slightly different words, right? It, yeah. It's much more about power, much more about winning, much more yeah. about performance. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I think it's important to call that out. I'm really glad you did. Thank you for nuancing that. All right. Simplify was produced by me, Caitlin Schiller, Ben Schumann-Stoller, Maria Levitschek, and Stefano Badia here in Berlin, Germany at Blinkist HQ. If you would like to try Blinkist and hear any of the Blinks that we mentioned, then you can go to Blinkist.com slash friends and enter the code Kazdin, K-A-Z-D-I-N. All right. Till next time, check it out. Bye-bye.